You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1, And he said to the disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. Matthew's gospel, chapter 18, is a, is a parallel passage where Matthew goes a little bit deeper in this discussion that Jesus has with the disciples. And in, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus starts out this by saying, woe to the world because of offenses or because of sin or because of stumbling blocks. That word woe is an exclamation of grief. It's an exclamation of grief. In modern day language, the the similar phrase would be, oh, 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 you know, and Jesus is saying it and he sees all the sin in the world and knows the effects and the consequences of it. And so when he thinks about how deep and how destructive and how binding sin is, he just really, in a sense, groans and says, oh, my creation, my world, your offenses and your sin. The world has sin. The world has offenses. And it's impossible that no offenses or no sin is going to come to people. But ah, to him through whom they do come. You know, because of this world's great sin and the trappings of it and how widespread sin is to every single one of us, children and innocent new believers are going to be confronted with temptation to sin. It's going to happen. It's a sad thing. We think of our innocent little children and the thought of them falling into sin someday. It just grieves our heart. Ah, you know, a woe comes out. But sadly, it's inevitable. And because of that, we kind of can take on a passive attitude towards sin in our home. The shows that we watch on TV, you know, while Russell is there or Lainey is there, you know. Oh, they're little. They don't know what that word means. You know, they they don't understand. And they're going to hear it anyways. So, you know, the major sins will guard them from. But these, you know, they don't even understand. You know, they don't know. And man, how convicting this passage is to me as a new father with two young children that the sins are going to come. It's inevitable. But woe to the one through whom they come. Rented a movie the other night. You know, not a a bad movie, a PG-13 movie and pretty clean for the most part. Couple cuss words, you know, not that I'm I'm not justifying that in any way, but, you know, I'm thinking, oh, the... Russell's in bed and I'm with my mom and my wife and not a bad movie. And little Laney's there, you know, you know, three weeks old, just nursing, just being held. And the words are, you know, occasional word. And I'm like, ah, you know, she's, she's little. She doesn't know. She doesn't speak English. You know, it doesn't speak even English. You know, she doesn't know what that is. And and just the Lord, and I'll just confess to you that, you know, I didn't get up, I didn't shut it off, I didn't say, hey, let's put Laney in the other room or anything like that, you know, or, or let alone protect my wife or anything like that. But the whole time the Lord's like, so what are you going to do when you get to that passage on Sunday? <laughs> but Lord, I spent a dollar on this at the red box. You don't want me to waste a dollar, do you? <laughs> you know, 
And so, man, just I'm with you guys. I know that, you know, and, and it's not just children, but the innocent ones, the new believers or the believers who are striving for holiness. They're innocent. They're children in the Lord's eyes. And man, if we are the ones that are causing them to stumble, stumble, not just question, you know, perhaps there's things that happen and you're, 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 you know, trying to have a dialogue about grace versus legalism. And it's a, it's a genuinely good topic in the person's reasoning. There's nothing wrong with the person reasoning. We're talking about stumbling, falling, falling in the faith, backsliding, causing this person to sin. There's such a danger there. Woe to the one who, who through whom these uh, offenses do come. Verse two, it's better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, then he should offend one of these little ones. Matthew adds a little bit more there. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for them if they had a millstone hung around their neck and they were cast into the sea. Now, if you go to Capernaum on the north end of the Sea of Galilee, uh, you'll just see that it is millstone central. And this is where Jesus was teaching this from. Lots of grinding of the grain happening there. And a millstone could, could be anywhere from 200 to 1,000 pounds. Giant, giant pieces of stone, round wheel-looking objects. Now, how serious is Jesus that, that we protect the integrity and the innocence of our brothers and sisters and our children? How serious is it? Serious enough for Rory to get his rear off the couch you know, and either shut the movie off or remove the child out of the room. And you understand that, that struggle, but it's that serious. It's serious enough that I could at least have done that. It's serious enough that Jesus says you might as well, you know, have the elders in the church fit you with a pair of concrete shoes and take you out on Zane's boat out on Ochico reservoir and drop you over the side. You know, you might as well get dunked by the mafia in the Prineville mafia out in the reservoir, you know, that's what our elders, I refer to them as the Prineville Mafia. <laughs> if you don't know that yet, you'll get to know that real soon. But um, so how serious is God about this? He takes being a stumbling block or presenting a stumbling block very seriously. And so I want to ask you, and obviously I've been doing heart searching and, and want to do more heart searching. What ways could we possibly cause the little ones whether it's children or those young in the faith or just our brothers and sisters, how could we possibly stumble them? And it's incredible what the children pick up on. I mean, they're imitators and they like to imitate things. Just this week, Russell, we're sitting at the dinner table and he just starts going, I'm stupid. I like hockey. You know, and I'm like, where in the world, you know, and it was from a SpongeBob episode. And he kept saying that. I'm like, Russell, I don't want you saying stupid, <laughs> you know, I just don't want you saying that. You don't need to say that. You can say, I'm Russell. I like hockey. But, you know, just, let's just not use that, you know. And he picked up on that. I'd never even heard that before. Found it out, though, through a little detective work. And so, really, let's do a heart search this morning. In what ways could I possibly be causing people to sin? Or am I causing people to sin? Really, look at ourselves, not our neighbor. Oh, yeah, no, they're causing me to sin, you know, or whatever. But, uh, you know, they're making me so angry right now. Uh, but in what ways are we, am I causing people to sin? Do my feet take people to places and it digs a hole in front of them? Just come with me, man, just, just once. It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. 
You know, it was a big hole in front of them. They fell into that pit. You know, does my mind conjure up words that dig a hole for people? Does my love for comedy and reiterating jokes to people dig a hole for those people? I love laughing. I love jokes. And sometimes there's those jokes that are a little bit in the gray area. But you know what? I'm going to tell it to people anyways. Again, that happened this week, you know, just after prayer, you know, just Chad and Frank and I are hanging out. And I said this joke that's, you know, gray and and they kind of, yeah, that's funny. You know, and I was like, oh, what am I doing? Why did I even say that? We just got done with prayer. So stupid. Yeah, it was funny. I mean, it was good. It was good. Yeah, funny, guys. Let's be real. But now let's repent, you know. You know, is, is our love for the, just the things of the world, does it cause other people to stumble? Do I stumble people in my indifference, in my passiveness to sin, in my numbness to sin? You know, oh yeah, you know, I work with Rory, you know. He says he's a Christian, but, you know, and he's not a bad person, you know. He's, he's not cold, but he's not hot either. You know, and I, and I thought that Christians were to be hot. You know, I thought they were to be, you know, standing up for this Jesus guy and, and standing up for morality and, and standing up when people are, do, you know. And, and Rory just, he just, he doesn't really care. He's just there to work, you know. You know, and my indifference is, am I causing this person to just not want to believe? Am I putting a stumbling block in front of them? Now, in our Christianity, we are given freedom. We're given liberty. We're showered in grace. But Paul tells us we're not to, get, to use this liberty as an opportunity to sin. Oh, yeah, now I get to go to the strip clubs and I get to get drunk. I get to now. Jesus' blood covers me of those sins. And, you know, no, Paul says we're free from sin now. We don't have to sin anymore. We're not slaves to sin anymore. We've died to sin. So how should we live any longer in it? And so we do have liberties as a Christian, never liberty to sin, always freedom from sin. But even in Paul's day, there were some of those gray areas where certain people had strong convictions on and other people's were, were just like grace, man, grace. And at that time, it was eating meat that was offered to idols. Now to us, that doesn't seem like a big deal. But back in that day, you know, you're on your way to Acts 242 home group Sunday night. You're supposed to bring the main steak for the night. And you're thinking the best steak in Rome is up at, you know, that, that temple. And it's just out there and it's practically free and it's the best choices of meat. And some of it's already been barbecued for me. I just pick it up, wrap it in a little tinfoil, take it to 242 home groups, you know? And as, you, as they're digging in at the home group, someone unwraps the cellophane and sees the stamp of the temple to, you know, whoever it is there. And I can't eat this. This is an outrage, you know? And, you know, Paul would have the argument that, you know what, it's meat, it's on the outside of the body, it cannot make me sin, it's just food, for goodness sakes. And so there was that battle between, well, what do we do? And I love, if you'll flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, he says, you know, yes, we have this freedom. You know, we have this freedom. But beware, verse 9, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block or an offense to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? 
But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So as Christians, we have liberties such as having a glass of wine with dinner or a beer or two beers with a friend, never getting drunk, the scriptures tell us. But as Christians, you have the liberty to do that unless the Lord has, has, has convicted you in your heart that you are not to. For him who knows what to do right and what is right to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. You know, so the Lord has convicted you. You are not to. You know, it's been in your family. It's been in you and your past that you're an alcoholic. You're not to drink those things. And so, you know, the, the Lord has, you know, perhaps maybe given you the freedom to do that. And you invite somebody over and, you know, you, you offer them a, a beer or something and, and they, they're offended. You know, we, we can't do that. You can't drink a beer. What are you doing? And, and you try to explain to them grace and never to get drunk, but to just enjoy this this brew or whatever, you know, and, and there's just, there's intense dialogue and, but, and eventually if the person doesn't, you know, if the person is led to fall from it or to sin from it, then man, you say, you know what? I totally understand. I'll never drink again. If it offends you, if it causes you to stumble, it's not important to me. You're important to me. You're my brother. I love you so much more than a glass of wine. I love you so much more than my Eminem rap music that I blare from my truck. That, not, that might be more of a black area, not so much a gray area. But um, you see where, you know, freedom. But, uh, you know, we're to have the freedom not to sin anymore. And so, man, I love that Paul says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And so in our liberties that we have, you know, just look, man, am I causing anything? Is anything that I do causing someone to stumble or to, to backslide in any way? Then, man, I want to repent of that. And then in verse 3 of Luke chapter 17, take heed to yourselves or watch yourself or check yourself. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Sources show that the original manuscripts, it's better read, take heed to yourselves if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And so if you see your brother in sin, he's practicing sin or, or he's sinning in front of you and his heart you know, hasn't apologized for it, he's unrepentant, then our job is to rebuke that person. Now, a younger person is never to rebuke an elder or an elderly person. Paul tells Timothy that, you know, but rather to just admonish them as a brother, never rebuked, rebuke the elder. But that word rebuke means to charge someone with a disapproval. It's pretty sharp and it's harsh language. And we all kind of shy away from that. Oh man, I know that I saw, you know, when, you know, Frank and Chatter thinking, yeah, when Rory kind of said that, I should have just rebuked him right there. But you know, when we, when we, the, the sin has been done, we shy away from the confrontation. And I'll be honest with you, I'm one of those that are non-confrontational, afraid of confrontation. In fact, when I was interviewing to come here, one of the first questions they asked Lindsay, who was there at the interview, was, uh, you know, what is Rory's greatest weakness? Boom! Immediately she answers, he does not like confrontation. I'd like to state that on the record, he does not like confrontation. You know, I'm like, what? I've gotten better. Come on. You know, and, and I don't like confrontation, 
But I know that there's times I have to confront. And what that does for me is it causes me to get on my face and cry out to the Lord that I'd have the right perspective, that I'd go in love, that I'd go in strength, and that he'd be with there in my weakness and give me the power to do it. And so as Christians, we do. There's times we need to confront a brother. And Proverbs chapter 27, verses 5 and 6 tell us that open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, oh, we love to just be buddy-buddy with people and be their best friends, but the word tells us it's better to correct them right there, get the awkwardness out of the way, then you go home that night and mull it over. I know I need to correct that person, but I'm probably just not going to for the sake of our strong friendship that we have. No, it's better to just deal with it, openly rebuke, and move on. It also goes on to say, faithful are the wounds of a friend but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And man, there's been times in my life where I've had to tell people, because I love you, I cannot let you go on in this sin. If I didn't love you, I'd act like nothing was wrong and that everything you're doing is fine and I'd turn a blind eye to it. But because I love you, I'm confronting you on this and I'm calling you to repentance. Revelation chapter three, verse 19, Jesus tells us that as many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. Because the Lord loves us. He doesn't let us go on in our sin and continue the way that we are, but he rebukes us and he chastens us. And man, as you read Hebrews chapter 12 and 13, you just read all about how whom the Lord loves, he chastens. You know, and all of us have had fathers that have corrected us and we pay them respect. And even so much so, the Lord rebukes us and chastens us. And we need to be appreciative of that. And so there's correction that goes on in the midst of in the midst of this living temple here. Ephesians chapter four, verse 15, tell us that we're to speak the truth in love. Speak the truth, not in anger or in wrath or, the, or to show them what's up and how much better you are than them or anything like that, but we're to speak the truth in love. We have a responsibility to admonish one another. And really it's a self-purifying principle. I have to deal with that sin in my life before I can go and deal with that sin in that person's life. And Jesus says, if he repents, forgive him. That word repent means to think differently or to change your mind about that sin, to realize it's wrong and to confess it before the Lord and to do whatever it takes to change and to forsake that. And it says, if he repents, forgive him. You might underline that. It doesn't say if he repents, then, you know, say, oh, it's all good, but then kind of hold it over his head for the rest of his life and, you know, kind of be like, I know what you've done, you know, or, you know, I know your sin, you know, or, or just always give him that look like, I know, still. <laughs> and blackmail people, that's illegal in a lot of states. But um, if he repents, forgive him straightway, right away, never to remember again. Verse four, if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. The story is told of a, of a Catholic priest who moved to Southern Georgia, the, the home of the peanut farmers, apparently. And as the Catholic priest, you know, was trying to understand the culture of these Southern Georgianers and their peanuts, um, he, he had a, a, a young man come in to confess one morning. And the young man said, yeah, you know, Father, I, uh, I've been throwing peanuts in the river. I'm sorry. You know, and the father's like, oh, that's okay. 
apparently that's a big issue down here, you know. And, you know, later on that afternoon, here comes the same, same young man. Father, just forgive me again. I threw peanuts in the river. It's like, oh, gosh, that's too bad. Just don't do it anymore, you know. Third time, Father, forgive me. I've thrown peanuts in the river. Just stop doing it, okay? I, whatever. Finally, a little boy comes in and confesses a little sin. And Father said, oh, it's okay, you know, just, it's all good. Just, you know, repent and go your way and sin no more. And, but I do have one little question for you. What is it with people feeling so bad about throwing peanuts in the river? And the little boy goes, because that's my name. I'm Peanuts. <laughs> if your brother throws you in the river seven times in one day, I don't know why he would do that, really. But if he does, forgive him. I love Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16. I'm just starting to, to try and discipline myself even more to memorize scriptures. And so I'm getting note cards and every day I write with a different color Sharpie uh, verses that I'm in and I put them on the fridge and on my mirror and all that, trying to retain more of the word in my heart. And um, one of the verses for last week was, for a righteous man may fall seven times a day and rise again. That's encouraging, isn't it? A righteous man in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord knows that we're sinners. He sympathizes us with us in our weakness. And man, we repent and we change and we, you know, we, we try. But he knows that we're still of a sinful nature and that we'll fall. And it may happen that seven times you fall. Then get up again and go back to the throne of grace and humble yourself and seek forgiveness. In Matthew's gospel, verse, chapter 18, and we're going to go over there in a little bit, Peter came to Jesus and asked him, Lord, how often should I forgive someone? Up to seven times? You know? Back in Jewish law, it was four times, was max. And so Peter thought he was being really liberal. Whoa, get this, guys. Hey, guys, watch this. I'm going to tell Jesus seven times. You know? And so seven times, Lord, I'm so spiritual. Say my name. My name's Peter. Um, <laughs> And Jesus replied, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. So there you have it, you guys. If your brother sins against you 490 times, that's it. That's all you have to forgive him. And you can kick him to the curb. You can disown him. All right, I'm glad we have a scriptural reference for that. I'm sad that you have one because you'll probably use it against me sometime. But, you know, you know, what Jesus is saying here is more than 490 times. Peter, you might as well have said one billion trillion gazillion friend trillion, you know, might as well have made up a number because now that we're believers and we've been forgiven, the question is no longer how many times should I forgive, but why should I forgive? And the principle is laid out for us in Luke chapter seven. That he who is forgiven much loves much. And when we realize what we've been forgiven, all that list, you know, my list would start in Canada and go all the way down I-5 and end down in Southern California and it's still being written to this day. But since I realize how much I've been forgiven, man, it is no problem for me to just forgive another person who sins against me. At times it is. I'm not saying I'm above that, but, but man, I, I've been forgiven much. And so I love much. The story is told of David Livingston, who gave his life for Africa. 
And early on in his ministry, it was really hard for him because he knew he was called to Africa where it was hostile. And he was really impressed upon his heart that he wasn't supposed to take his wife to Africa with him because he was afraid that, that she would be killed. And so she, he left her there in England. And it took quite a few years before she was even able to visit him. And so the gossip and the rumors and the slander started happening against Dr. Livingston that their marriage was unhealthy. And of course, he's abandoned his wife for the ministry and that's not right. And, and it just grew and it really shook David Livingston's world, all of this sin against him, all of this gossip and slander. And after 20 years of malicious gossip regarding him not taking his wife to Africa, he wrote in his memoirs to a friend, I often think I have forgiven as I hope to be forgiven, but the remembrance of slander often comes boiling up. Although I hate to think of it, you must remember me in your prayers that more of the spirit of Christ may be imparted to me. Man, when you are sitting here today in these chairs and you're remembering those people who have wronged you and wronged you so hard and hurt you, Man, may you pray like David Livingston that you may have the spirit of Christ imparted to you. Because Colossians tells us we're to bear with one another. We're to forgive one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you ought to forgive them. You know, forgiveness isn't natural to us. Revenge is natural. It feels so good for that second when you get that revenge. But forgiveness is supernatural. And today, and today you can cry out just for forgiveness to be given to you for your sins from the Lord and also that you could forgive others for their sins. And as the disciples are hearing this more than seven times, <laughs> I've been thrown in the river seven times today. I'm supposed to forgive this guy more than seven times. I love the disciples reaction in verse five. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. <laughs> That's right up there when we studied divorce last week and Jesus told them his strong standards for marriage and divorce and remarriage. And after that, the disciples go, if this is the case for marriage, it'd be better if you just never got married. You know, I love their reactions. It's hilarious. You know, whoa, more than seven times, Lord, increase our faith. And as you think about how even today, the Lord is calling you to forgive those who've wronged you. Maybe even now, as we just continue in the word, you just say, Lord, help me here. Lord, increase my faith. Lord, I believe that you want me to forgive, but help my unbelief. We're going to jump over to Matthew chapter 18, kind of the parallel passage that goes in uh, much more detail. Verse 15. Now, Matthew chapter 18 is a key to us in resolving conflict and issues between Christians. If followed correctly, offenses can be forgiven, friendships are gained, reconciliation takes place. But if you ignore or don't follow Matthew chapter 18 correctly, even the smallest conflict or disagreement can explode and reconciliation can be close to impossible. Now the sin that's spoken of in this chapter and in Luke chapter 17, it speaks of a sin that's especially heinous, extreme slander, adultery, lies, thefts, etc. 
It doesn't say, you know, if your brother irritates you or offends you or ignores you, you're to go to them about that. We have a word in, in, in the scriptures given to us in the English language that's forbearance, bearing with one another and have grace with one another. You know, we're to have uh, um, a tender heart, but tough skin because people are going to offend us, you know. People look at us wrong and we get offended and they don't even know it. They're not even thinking anything. And just, man, just have grace with one another. Just, you know, don't harbor any, you know, anything in your heart. Just, just forgive right away. Don't even think about it again. And so it's not just talking about little things like the way, you know, you may have thought their tone sounded when they said something or something like that. These are very harsh sins that we're talking about. And before we get in, there's an order that's given to us on how we confront our brother in their sin and how we eventually restore them and reconcile them. There's a few steps that I'd like to add in the beginning, and I think the Lord would definitely concur. It's scriptural. And so before we get to step one, write down in your notes, pre-step 1A, if you will, for the sake of outline purposes. The pre-steps here are self-preparation before you go to confront somebody on them sinning against you. The pre-step number one would be uh, to pray, to pray for a heart of forgiveness that you could say the same thing that Jesus said as he hung on the cross for your sins. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And man, before you even go into these, this confrontation, just Lord, forgive them. I forgive them right now, Lord, I forgive them. And man, after you do that, there might not even be a need anymore. Maybe the Lord will just show you in your heart as you're praying, like, dude, he was just, he just, the tone was wrong. You took it the wrong way. You know, it's, it's a non-issue. Just as you've asked for forgiveness, here, forgive them. Move on. There's no confrontation necessary. The other pre-step would be to get the plank out of your own eye and to deal with the sin yourself. You know, and Jesus does tell us that, you know, to, to get that telephone pole or that beam out of your eye because you're going around trying to do eye surgery on other people with that in it and it's hypocrisy jesus says you hypocrite first deal with the sin you know that you have and then help that other person get out of their sin and man doesn't it isn't that just a word for us because we tend to judge other people's with their sin and just be angry with them and make a big deal about it because we're in the same sin and trapped in the same sin. I can't even look at you right now. What have you done? Yeah, and the Lord's like, yeah, same thing that you just did, you know? And so get the plank out of your eye straight away, right away. And so then you get into the steps that are given to you. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. So step number one is tell the brother or the sister their fault. Underline this. Memorize it. Don't mess these steps up and don't get them out of order. It's between them and you alone. And how we love to skip this part and bring our best friends into it and just say, oh, I've really got an issue. I need to talk to you about it. You wouldn't believe what Susie said. <laughs> so offended me. And the way she looked at me too. Oh, it was horrific come with me. Let's go talk to her. You know, no, 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 no. That is not what Jesus said. You go to them alone, you and them alone. Verse 15 is also not saying, you know, go tell everyone else the fault that your brother committed. 
It's also not saying go to the church prayer meeting and pray a prayer for that person, you know, a very specific prayer. Lord, just be with Jerome. You know how he likes to drive to Vegas, you know, and he's even there right now. And, and you know, this and that. And Jerome's like, I go to Vegas because my mom lives there. But, you know, still, <laughs> you know, specific prayers that are gossip, uh, you know, that are tried to be churched up a little bit. It's gossip. You're in sin. You need to go to that person between you and him alone. And then Jerome will tell you, my mom lives in Vegas. That's the only reason I go there. And she lives in the outskirts of Vegas. I've never even been downtown. I don't know. I've never, no, you know, and well, thank you for clearing that up. You know, it's a good thing we followed step one first off, but you need to go to that person. Proverbs chapter 17, nine says that when you cover the transgression, you seek love. But if you repeat the matter and start telling it to people, it'll separate the best of friends. He's not saying here in verse 15 to go and get two to three more people and tell these people all the sins they've committed, uh, this person's committed against you. No, that's the next step. And it's a little bit skewed when you do it that way anyways. We're to go to this person alone. And Galatians chapter six tells us that we're to go with a spirit of gentleness. If you're going out of anger, then you've forgotten to do the pre-steps. <laughs> you needed to spend time with the Lord and prepare your heart and have compassion and and ask the Lord for that spirit of gentleness. Leviticus tells us in chapter 19, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. The ESV puts it this way, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. If you're hiding this in your heart and you're not and it's been, it's an outward, it's an open sin. There needs to be this confrontation and you're just letting bitterness simmer in your heart. Then you're incurring sin because of that person. So if your brother sins against you and you tell him the fault and he repents, forgive him. It says there in verse 15, if he hears you and hopefully he has his hearing aid in that, that in that day, you know, go to someone with a hearing aid and Rory came up, he looked very passionate, but I have no clue what he was talking about. And I go back to, this guy's in sin, he won't repent. Just make sure that they can hear. If he hears you, uh, then forgive him. You've gained your brother. And underline that part, you've gained your brother. Guys, that is the purpose of this whole section. It's, it's to gain your brother. It's not to show them how great you are. It's not to embarrass them. It's not to point them out and get to show everybody their sin. The whole point of Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 and on, is to gain your brother and to have reconciliation take place. Ah, to gain a brother. James chapter five, verse 20 tells us that if you turn a sinner from the error of his way, he will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Go and and turn that brother from the error of his way. There's another section of scripture in Matthew chapter five that tells us that if you go to the altar to worship and you remember that your brother has something against you, he knows that you've sinned against him, you you know you've offended him, then you need to leave your gift at the altar and you need to go and you need to be reconciled to that brother and you need to take care of it right then and there. Now, the sphere of sin, the sphere of the sin determines the sphere of the confession that takes place. If it's a public sin, you know, and it's outward and open and everybody knows about it, then there needs to be an outward and open confession. 
But if it's a, if it's a private sin and it's in your heart, it's between you and the Lord alone. You know, people come up to you and just say, I just want you to know I need to lay my gift at the altar. I really got a lot of problems with you. You annoy me, you know, and I can't believe you talk that way. I can't believe you look that way. And well, now I am, my conscience is clear. I'm going to go back and go worship, you know, and that other person's like, oh man, now I've got an issue against him. Lord, help me to forgive it. You know, the sphere of the offense determines the sphere of the, of the, um, of the, the apology that takes place. And that's always been something I've been like, well, well, how does that work? And I think bottom line, as my friend so wisely put it to me, as I was like, well, what if this happens? And there's a lot of different situations. My friend Chris just said it so wisely, just to keep short accounts with one another. Just keep short accounts. Don't let things fester, you know, just, man, have I wronged you in any way? You know, I don't know. It seems to me like your tone towards me, perhaps I've wronged you. Have I wronged you? Because I'm so sorry. You know, just short accounts, keeping short accounts. And so if, if you go and you're settling accounts, really, and you, you, uh, he, he asks for forgiveness and he hears you, you've gained your brother, which is the main point of it all. Then we get into step two in verse 16. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So hopefully it doesn't come to this. But what this is, is it's trying to reason with him again. And this time with more people who love this person that can plead with them. Hey, you know, I know Rory has talked to you, but now we're here too. And we're not here to embarrass you or to intimidate you. Or, you know, Rory didn't bring his bodyguards this time, you know, but I just want you to know that, that we love you too. And we've seen this sin and we're just pleading with you to come and repent and come back into fellowship. Bringing these one or two more people accomplishes two things. Number one, if you are right, the witness can testify that what you're saying is true. Number two, if you're wrong, the person can judge from an unbiased position and correct both of you where both of you have fallen short. And so if it ever does come to this point where you need to get one or two other witnesses, you need to pray. And you need to pray over who those people are. You want someone disconnected from the situation, not your best friend there to get your back, if you will. Not someone who's going to be your yes man. You know, every time I have to confront somebody, I have Ernie come with me. You know, it's like, come on, Ernie, you know, do that mean look on your face. You know, you're a big guy, you know. I win every single confrontation when I take Ernie with me. No, that's not the point of it. The point is to gain the brother, to help them to realize that, you know, yeah, we can take Ernie, but he's just going to be there to show them that he loves them too and plead with them to come back. And so hopefully through prayer and through just urging and pleading, that person will come back. Then in verse 17, and if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So really there's two steps there in verse 17, which is our our third step. Tell it to the church and hopefully it doesn't come to this, but tell it to the church. And the reason for this isn't so that the whole church can be like, shame, shame. We know your sin. You should have turned away or you should have repented right away. But no, the point to tell it to the church is that so that not is it one or two or three people now that are pleading with this person and showing them love, but now it's a hundred or 200 or maybe even more people that can just be, look, man, 
We're not condemning you. We're not judging you. We struggle with sin too. But man, daily we have to humble ourselves and crucify the flesh. And and man, we're there with you. We sympathize. Come back. Come be restored. And man, this guy's going to get machine gunned with a whole bunch of grace and love and mercy and people who love him and smiley faces. And man, that's why you take it to the church. Not to discredit them and not to slander them and not to say, oh, you refuse me and you refuse my two witnesses. Well, try to refuse 400 people. Not the point of it. They're there to plead with them to repent. And then sadly, if they still refuse, the fourth step is dismissal from fellowship. And man, that is a hard thing to do. That is, that's when confrontation has come to a whole new level. Hard thing to do but a biblical thing to do, a right thing to do. If you'll flip to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, we're going to read verse 6, and then we're going to jump down to verses 14 and 15. Paul tells us that we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. And then look down at verse 14. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So as a person is dismissed, they're ashamed, not because you're shaming them, but because they know the consequences of their sin. And the effect of that will be, you know, they are ashamed. And yet, however, you're not treating them as an enemy. You're still loving them and admonishing them as a brother, even when you run into them outside of the church. The Corinthians were going through a a season like this. If you read 1 Corinthians, that whole letter is a letter of correction by Paul. You know, he says, do I need to come with a rod of correction or with the spirit of gentleness? And he had to come with the rod, (laughs) you know, that whole book. But one of the things he had to correct the Corinthian church for was that there was a young man in the fellowship that was uh, having intimate relations with his stepmom. Just a, a horrific thing, a, a horrible sin, obviously. But the Corinthians didn't see it that way. They let this guy continue to come and to fellowship in the church, and, and the Corinthians prided themselves on being so open-minded. And we're just, uh, we're open, we're, our doors are open, we're open-minded. Come on in and look how great we are. He's even here worshiping with us. He's in the front row and the young man and the mother and the father all sitting together in the front row making their statement. And Paul rebuked them and said, oh no, no, that is not what you need to do, but you need to do the steps from Matthew, which apparently they had already done. And by this point, they just said, whatever, you know, we'll just be open-minded. And then he said, you need to dismiss him from the fellowship. And the wording that Paul uses is strong and probably offensive to those who are on the outside of the faith. But Paul says, you need to deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his soul might be saved in the end. Hard language, hard thing to do. But man, you want to know what the fruit of it was? You read 2 Corinthians and they had done that. And it's an incredible thing because the man had repented and he was trying to get back into fellowship. But now there were people who were kind of like, I don't know if we can forgive this guy for what he's done. I mean, that was pretty bad. We'll go ahead and see how bad it was. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. It says, if anyone has caused grief 
this guy has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, this punishment was the dismissal of this guy, is sufficient for such a man. Oh, it's too harsh. Oh, it's offensive. Oh, how could you? You know what? This punishment is biblical from the mouth of Jesus, and it's sufficient for such a man and for such a sin. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and to comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you're obedient in all things. The reason that Paul said, dismiss him, deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that what? Not that he just lay out there on the street in the sewage, but that he could have his soul saved. The end that he's talking about is the gaining the brother. The end that he's talking about is the reconciliation. And so he says to them, man, forgive him and comfort him. And in verse eight, reaffirm your love to him. Go up to him and look him in the eye and say, I am so glad you're back. You know what? You are forgiven. Welcome home, brother. Welcome home. That hard trial for the Corinthian church brought so much good things into that body. Joy and purity and vehement desire for the Lord, he goes on to talk about in chapter seven. It's hard to do, but it's good to do. It's for the good of the reputation of God's holiness that this person be dismissed from the church. If he's living a life of blatant outward sin, unrepentant practicing it, and he's calling himself a believer, then people on the outside are saying, well, that church must obviously think that God is not a holy God and they must take sin lightly. This person needs to be dismissed. It's for the good of the man himself. The destruction of his flesh, yes, but that his soul might be saved. And finally, it's good for the church. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Other people will think it's okay to do such a thing as well. The witness of the church can be marred. As you're there in, in Matthew chapter 18, man, it's a sad, it's a sad thing to do. Just remembering, you know, sometimes I, I put it out of my mind, but I was just remembering as I was studying yesterday, one of my best friends, one of my best friends growing up, the man who's really responsible for me getting set on fire for Jesus, one of my best friends, my youth pastor, the one who did my wedding, the pastor who officiated my wedding, man, to me, it was Jesus and this friend of mine could do no wrong. <laughs> and man, just three years ago, you know, we were on staff together. He was the college pastor. I was the high school pastor. And he left his wife and, and his two beautiful children, beautiful wife, beautiful children, beautiful home, really everything you'd want in this world, left his wife and went to Costa Mesa and had an affair. And, uh, and just, you know, that's forgivable. Yeah, man, it's forgivable come back, man. It's, it's sin. We all sin. Come back, be forgiven. No, I don't want to. What? Man, you're, you're my, you're my Elijah. I'm your Elisha. You're my Paul. I'm your Timothy. Come back. Come back. Please come back. No, no. In fact, then he put the blame on all of us. And that was really nice too. But man, as we, we, we did the Matthew chapter 18, we met with him. He wouldn't respond. We took a couple more people. He wouldn't respond. And I'll never forget the day that we shared with the church 
that he had, had left and fallen into sin and was unrepentant. And, but you know what's amazing is the church wasn't, ah, stone him, you know. But you want to know the first thing that we did? We established a morning of prayer and fasting for an entire week. Prayer and fasting, prayer and fasting, prayer and fasting. And man, if you could hear the cries and see the tears and the pleading for this brother to come back, and he, he didn't come back. But man, there's been times, even since we've dismissed him, that I'll just shoot him an email and say, I love you so much. You're responsible for me being a pastor. I love you so much. And I just, I just want you to know, if you ever repent and come back, I'll be the first one out on the road greeting you. I'll be the first one. You're welcome back here. You repent, you come back here. I'm the first one there. Oh, I miss you too. So great to hear from you. You haven't heard the whole side of the story though. No, that's not, I don't want to just repent and come back, you know, just come back. But the prayer and the fasting and the crying out for this person and, you know, and it's so hard to three years later still be in that stage of dismissal from fellowship. And just this spring before I moved here, I got a Facebook friend request from this person. Hey, you want to be my friend? (laughs) You know, it's all good. Let's play Mafia Wars on Facebook and we can send each other pictures and do all that kind of stuff. You can poke me or whatever. I don't, I don't, I don't do that stuff on Facebook. But Anthony, oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> He's not in here. Never mind. Um, he'll tell you. But man, just to, 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 I'll tell you that friend request sat there for a month. Oh, should I accept it? Should I accept it? You know, a month sharing with other people. And they're like, yeah, I got one too. And I don't know what to do. And I'm like, man, I just have to deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his soul would be saved. He knows I love him. I've sent him emails pleading with him to come. He knows I love him, but I'm not going to act like everything's okay because I love you. I'm telling you that things are not okay. Verse 18, assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now, these, this is a great set of verses on prayer, very applicable to prayer. But what is the context of this? The context is gaining your brother. The context is when you've told the church about this brother and you're getting together and you're praying and fasting over this church or over this man, the context is, Lord, we're giving him over to you. We're dismissing him. We're giving him over to you and we're still praying for him. And I'll tell you what, not only from him, but other people that we've had to dismiss from fellowship, have I heard stories of when they were running, they were miserable. They were literally hell on earth. They, they were experiencing things in the spiritual realm and warfare that like they've never experienced the hand of the Lord. Like David said, when he sinned was heavy upon him. David says that, you know, my, my, uh, tears drench my pillow at night because of my sin and my bed swims at night. Can't sleep. Can't think. Won't repent. I'm stubborn. I'm kicking against the goats, but it is not pleasant. And the whole point is that they go through this turmoil that they come to the end of themselves and they come to repentance. And so that's, you know, the the correction process. If they come back, forgive them. And then we're just going to kind of cruise through verses uh, 21 through 35. It's just a a neat parable on forgiveness. Uh, And actually, since we already know verse 21 and 22, let's look at verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. 
And so he kept short accounts, just like my buddy Chris can't just keep short accounts. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So 10,000 talents was 60 million denarii. And a denarii was a day's wage. So what this guy owed this master was uh, 60 million days wages. In other words, he's just trying to tell us there's no way this guy was ever going to pay back this great debt. He was not able to pay, verse 25. His master commanded that he be sold and with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of the servant was moved with compassion released him and forgave him the debt. So what does that mean that he forgave him the debt? Who else is going to pay off this debt? Nobody's going to pay off this great debt. What the master did was assume this great debt upon himself. He took the debt. He paid the debt he did not owe. And what a picture of Jesus. We owed him so much because of our sin, but he had compassion on us and he came and gave his life and was crucified on the cross for us. And he assumed our sin, our transgression, our debts on his own. Beautiful picture of what Jesus has done. But then verse 28, but that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii or a hundred days wages, not even comparable to 60 million days wages. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw that had been done, they were very grieved and they came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he'd called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the tortures until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly father also will do to each of you. If each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother, his trespasses. Judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. Man, we have been forgiven so much. We've been loved so much. And he who is loved so much, man, they forgive so much when they realize what they at first have been forgiven. 60 million days wages. Well, Rory, you don't know what this person has done to me. I mean, it's been horrific. You don't know the emails I've gotten, the calls, the hatred, the curse words, the, what they've ruined my family. I, I'm divorced now because of them. Or my kids are single parents. You don't know what they, you don't know the pain that I went through. And I'm not minimizing your pain. Man, it hurts, I know. But let me ask you this. Did it hurt as bad as to die on the cross? Have you died on the cross yet to pay for that person's debt? If you haven't died on the cross yet to pay for that person's debt, then you haven't gone far enough in your forgiveness of them. Because Jesus, you don't know what they did. You know, he has all the rights to say that. You don't know what they did. I created them. I loved them. I gave them all things richly to enjoy. What did they do? You know what? doesn't matter. I love them. I'm going to die for them. You've been died for. You've been paid for. You've been died for. That's good English right there. You've been paid for. Your sins have been forgiven. Man, forgive those. You know, the the verse from Micah, it's it's a song actually too. Maybe you don't know what to do today about this. 
Well, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And so we're going to put our Bibles down and we're going to have the worship team come back up and Man, it's just, it's human nature to have multiple cases of unforgiveness in a group. And there's unforgiveness in this room today. And and just as we spend time in the presence of the Lord and we've seen his righteous standards for forgiveness, man, maybe today you like the disciples will say, Lord, increase my faith. How can I call that person and ask for forgiveness? How can I do it? You can't do it on your own, but you can do it with his strength. And man, let's just respond and allow the Lord to just work in our hearts, hearts of forgiveness towards those people. Maybe even as we worship, there's someone in this room that you know that you've wronged them and you know they know and just leave your gift at the altar and grab them and just ask for forgiveness. Just humble yourself. Maybe already, just before you even go any further, you just forgive another person in your heart today. Let's just allow the spirit of the Lord to just work in us. Let's allow him to take the ax to the root of bitterness this morning as we just spend time in his presence. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, check out our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com or you may write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thank you for listening and God bless.